1: defend and share your faith with confidence this is unapologetic from premier unbelievable hello
0: welcome back i'm justin briley and this is the show that is unapologetic about the christian faith and its capacity to transform renew and revitalize both individuals and culture well tom holland is a secular historian whose best-selling book dominion Shows exactly how Christianity has revolutionized culture, the rights and values that the Western world holds dear. Uh, he also hosts the hugely popular podcast, The Rest is History, with Dominic Sandbrook. But I was able to catch up with Tom earlier in the year at the Illuminations Europe conference in Scotland, which supports the work of Bible translation around the world. Well, Tom and I shared an on-stage conversation about why the Bible is the most influential book in the world, shaping concepts of equality, human rights, democracy and more really hope you enjoyed this first part of our conversation and don't forget to go to our website for more from unapologetic and all of our great resources a free ebook too when you register there for our newsletter premierunbelievable.com. for now here's what happened at the conference in scotland we are part of a mighty river that has been flowing for 2,000 years or more, and it's my great pleasure this evening to introduce to you someone who many of you may have come across either through his podcast or his published works. Tom Holland is a historian who has really made a name for himself, especially in recent years, through looking at the way in which our culture, the West, has been shaped by the Christian story. He's also uh, the host, along with Dominic Sambrook, of the, the, the Rest is History, a wonderful podcast which you should listen to if you're a podcast listener. And he's going to join me on stage now, Tom, do join me, to talk about, yes, Christian history, the Bible. Thank you. Well, this is a treat, Tom. We've all been looking forward to this all weekend. too
1: kind, you're <laughs> way too kind.
0: <laughs> We're going to sort of find out how a best-selling historian of the ancient world ends up with a bunch of evangelicals in Glen Eagles um, tonight. You invited me. I know. And you kindly said yes. Um, Because before we get into the, the theme of the whole conference here, which is the Bible and what we've been encouraging everyone to think about, the way in which it illuminates the nations and the way we want to see it impact all of the nations by everyone having it in their own heart language, before we get to talking about that in its historical context, I want to talk to you a bit about your own journey um, up to this point. Um, you, you've described yourself in the past, as when you were sort of entering your interest in history in the ancient world, as, as fairly ambivalent, I think, towards the Christian story. What, what was your kind of experience growing up in well,
1: that? Well, actually, on, actually I, I loved the Bible. OK. But I loved every kind of compendium of ancient stories. Uh, but I, I, I adored the Bible. I had all, any number of kind of, you know, children's illustrated Bibles. Genesis, stories in Genesis, Exodus, um, the Judges and Kings, so, you know, David and Goliath and Samson and all that kind of stuff. I, I, I've really found it thrilling. But the awful truth is that I, I, what I tended to find most thrilling were the enemies of the children of Israel. Right. So um, the crossing of the Red Sea, I was kind of on the side of Pharaoh. And <laughs> David and Goliath, I was very much with Goliath because he had the better armor. And you know, and even the Babylonians sacking Jerusalem, I, mm. you know, the Babylonians were great. They had big towers and hanging gardens, and very and glamorous. you know, and the children yeah. of Israel didn't really. Yeah. And when it came to the New Testament, which I found relative to the Old Testament a lot less interesting because it had less battles and beheadings <laughs> and all that kind of stuff, um, I was totally on the side of the Romans. I, I, and it kind of came alive for me whenever a centurion would pop up with mm. a sick servant. And obviously, the, you know, the, the, the most exciting bit was where not only did you get Roman soldiers, but you got a Roman governor with mm. a toga. and you know, eagles yeah. and um, marble and purple and all that kind of stuff. So, so that's the awful truth. Now, I, I, was, I, I went to church. I was um, raised by my mother, who, you know, very devout Anglican. Uh, and so I absolutely thought of myself as Christian. But the, but the thing is, I was one of those kind of horrible little boys who was really obsessed by dinosaurs <laughs> because they were big and fierce and glamorous and extinct. And I just migrated from my interest in dinosaurs to, to an interest in ancient empires. And... I, I felt that compared, say, to the Babylonians, the children of Israel were less interesting, and I felt that compared to the Romans, definitely, you know, the apostles were less interesting. Mm. I, and so if you'd asked me, you know, whose side are you on, Pilate's or Jesus's, you know, if my mother was there, I'd say, I've oh, got Jesus, of course. <laughs> but if I was true to my heart, I was, mm. with, I was yeah. with Pilate. Um, you, you because, left... because, because the Romans were kind of like the Tyrannosaurs yeah. of the ancient world. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah.
0: Glamorous. You know, clean-shaven, heroes, you know.
1: Purple, gold, yeah. marble, what's not to like?
0: Um, so, so you were on the side of the Romans. Um, and eventually, you know, having, you know, gone to university, you, you started really engaging with that classical world, that ancient yeah. world, uh, to an even greater degree. You started to research books, you know, many of which we, we know about now, um, about the ancient world. What, what was your experience as you went further and further into
1: that? So the first book I wrote on, on history, and this was aimed at a general market, um, and so I wanted to bring these, these stories alive, was really the background, I suppose, to the world that Jesus is born into. So it was the story about how the Roman Republic, which had conquered Um, much of the Mediterranean, including Jerusalem, Pompey the Great had captured Jerusalem and gone into the temple, how it imploded. Mm -hmm. And there were famous names involved in this. So Julius Caesar, the most famous, Cleopatra, Cicero, all these lots and lots of people called C. Pompey was probably (laughs) the only one who wasn't called C. Didn't begin with C. Um, And this had been a story that that had completely gripped me uh, from, from a very young age, and so in writing it, Um, I felt that I was going back to the wellsprings of my fascination with with history and particularly with this kind of period of ancient history. Um, But because I was writing for a general audience, I wanted to bring these people alive and so it, it, it required me to make a conscious effort to try and get inside their heads and to see the world through their eyes. And these are figures who I'd always kind of known were very different to the, to, to the world that I lived in. And that was, for me, was part of the appeal. But actually having to try and see the world through their eyes, I, I, I began to find it a, a, an increasingly unsettling process. And, you know, having said it would be brilliant to see a tyrannosaur, you wouldn't want it in your house. <laughs> I mean, you know, you wouldn't want it as a pet. No. And likewise. I could, f- I could find someone like Julius Caesar, you know, this extraordinarily dynamic figure, um, achieved remarkable things. In a way, that kind of the archetype of the great figure. But to kind of try and see the world through his eyes, I found increasingly upsetting. Because Caesar, uh, he conquered Gaul. Uh, this was his great military feat. And we're told by a reliable source, a fairly reliable source, that in the process of doing that, he slaughtered a million Gauls. And he he enslaved another million. I mean, these are near genocidal figures. But no one in Rome thought this was a bad thing. In fact, they thought it was heroic and it was trumpeted. Mm. And Caesar, you know, in due course, celebrated a great triumph. He paraded his treasure. paraded his slaves, Um, he paraded his prisoners through the streets of Rome. And everyone gave him massive cheers, hooray for Caesar. Mm. And so I I, I began increasingly to ask myself, well how is it that we live in a world where the idea of slaughtering a million people and enslaving another million seems to us repugnant. And yet, in the age of Caesar, Mm. it was a cause for celebration. And the more I wrote about, antiquity, the more this came to trouble me. So the the book I, after Rubicon, the book on the fall of the Republic that I wrote was about the the Greco-Persian wars. So that's um, the invasion, Persian invasion, Battle of Marathon, Battle of Thermopylae, Battle of Salamis. And the most famous of those probably is Thermopylae, those of you who've seen 300. You know, Spartans wearing nothing but black speedos, uh, <laughs> defying the might of the, uh, the Persian orcs and rhinoceroses. Not hugely historical, that, that <laughs> rendering. But, but um, you know, the Spartans are, uh, you know, it, it's a heroic thing. They had 300 Spartans holding the pass wiped out in the cause of their city. As a child, again, I'd been completely gripped by this. But the Spartans were horrible. They were horrible people. Mm. Their entire city state was founded on the institutional enslavement of another city. Um, and the things that the Spartans did to keep these people down. So they would, um, essentially, they, the Spartans provided the model for what Hitler wanted to do in, in Poland. Gosh, they, they wanted to, um, they, they practiced the kind of, mal- any, any of their slaves who seemed too intelligent, too, um, uh, too charismatic, they would kill them. Right. And they would kind of breed them deliberately to, to, to kind of create adultish, subservient. Yes. subservient, slavish society. They would haul them into their mess rooms and get them drunk, and then amuse themselves by pelting the, the drunken slaves with um, animal bones. And you just kind of think, mm. OK. They so they were very cool at Thermopylae.
0: But, you began to feel increasingly disturbed by this ancient yeah. world.
1: and B- Because as I say, Justin, I'm living in their heads all the yes, time. Yes. I- I'm having to see the world through their eyes. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable.
0: And I assume it left you the question of, well, where did my particular outlook on the world come from. And, and yes. that was part of the journey as well, wasn't it?
1: Yes, because the contrast seemed so profound. Mm. Uh, and, and I began to think, well, actually, you know, I, it's kind of like when you have an itch on your, you know, on your back and you can't get it and, you can't, and then you get hold of it and you scratch it and it feels great. And I, and I began to think, actually, you know, what changed basically was Christianity. And the more I thought about it, the more I came to realize that almost everything that I took for granted was it was basically coming from this kind of great revolutionary process that we call the coming of Christianity. And it wasn't just about the morals and ethics. Um, I mean, it was about kind of other things as well. So I found, say, writing about um, writing about uh, the Greeks or the Romans becoming increasingly queasy about certain words in English. Mm. that, that were simply anachronistic in the in the ancient context. So words like secular, words like religion, uh, even words like homosexuality, I began to realize that all of these were kind of dyed with Christian assumptions. They were absolutely freighted through with assumptions that had been bred of 2,000 years of Christian mm-hmm. history. Mm-hmm. And that in a sense, to try and see the world that existed before Christianity, well, you know, you're looking through a glass darkly. Yeah. You're looking through a glass darkly, and the, 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 the task of trying to clean you know, that glass so that you can, you can get rid of the, 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 kind of the, the, the Christian mm. infusions is incredibly difficult, yeah. and that, I think, is the measure of just how Christian the modern West is. You, you wrote an article before Dominion came out,
0: which is you know, the, the big argument, in a sense, for the way in which Christianity has gifted the West you know, its moral moral compass. Really, you, you wrote a, a sort of very short version of that for the New Statesman, I remember, and I think it was titled something like "Why I Changed My Mind." And and you were invited to to, to write about why you changed your mind, intellectually, as it were, on Christianity.
1: Well, about anything, we about write, it, it was a yeah. series, so but, lots but of but people you chose did it. That. But and and I chose Christianity, and, and it was the most controversial thing, so it went on the cover. Yes,
0: <laughs> and I remember it being shared widely at the time, and and many. On Twitter and elsewhere, and you're very active on Twitter, sometimes mistaken for Spider Man as well. Um, but, but that's another story.
1: We're all heroes well, in our Yeah,
0: uh, indeed. <laughs> um, but I remember lots of people, you know, the Secular Society, Humanists UK, and so on, saying, oh, don't be ridiculous, Tom. You know, our human values are just there from the Enlightenment, or it goes back to the Greeks and democracy and so on. I mean, what's your response to that? That ultimately, hey, we were bound to become the way we are, essentially. Well,
1: a, a further refinement of how I came to write about Christianity is that I also wrote a book about Islam, uh, the origins of Islam. And this was quite a controversial book because I, I made the argument that um, the, the Gospels, for instance, are within the lifetime of Jesus. So whether you're, you're you know, saying they were written 20 years after or 70 years after, you know, people alive in the time of Jesus almost certainly would have been able to read the Gospels. Mm. That's not the case with the earliest lives of Muhammad, which are, it, almost two centuries after the historical Muhammad um, existed, uh, and so I kind of argued essentially that um, what Muslims thought about the life of Muhammad and the origins of the Quran and the emergence of what comes to be Islam was essentially mythical. Mm. Um, and this didn't go down tremendously well <laughs> with uh, with lots of Muslims. And I remember giving a talk where a, a Muslim in the audience said, "You know, why are you saying this? It's so upsetting." You would, you would never do this to your own beliefs. Mm. And I remember the kind of the, the jolt of that because I'd come to realize that of course, I was writing as a, a, a liberal, an agnostic, someone who didn't believe that an angel had come to Muhammad. I didn't believe the Quran was the word of God. But that wasn't a neutral mm. standpoint. That was absolutely culturally conditioned standpoint. And I'd already begun to reflect on the fact that my liberalism, my secularism, my agnosticism, which looked back to the enlightenment as the origin of um, everything that I thought made modern civilization, that was already coming under strain. Mm -hmm. And so when she said, why don't you question your own beliefs, I thought, well, actually, do you know, I really should. I really should. And I should look heavily, seriously, at the Enlightenment, this idea that everything that is worthwhile began with the Enlightenment. And I should try and see, well, you know, stress test that. And the, 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 the absolute truth is that the Enlightenment is simply one of a huge number of iterations of a, a revolutionary impulse in Christianity, I think. And I think it's implicit within the word enlightenment. There's that idea of bringing people who walk in darkness into light. Um, that's, mm. you know, and, and at the heart of the enlightenment is an idea that you should topple idols and that you should banish superstition. And that by doing that, you'll become a better and happier person. Mm. And if that's not a Christian idea, I don't know what is, because you could describe the Reformation in, mm. in exactly those terms. Mm. And you could describe the process by which missionaries in the early Middle Ages went out into, you know, up into the wilds of of, of Northumbria and, dare I say, Scotland, <laughs> and into the wilds of Saxony and Scandinavia and so on. They were doing exactly the same. Mm. And, of course, the ultimate source for that is older than Christianity itself. It's, um, it's the, uh, the Hebrew prophets. It's mm. Isaiah and it's mm. Jeremiah who are saying, to the Egyptians and to the Assyrians and to the Babylonians, your idols are just stock and stone. Yeah. Um, so I think that the the, the Enlightenment is simply mm. a, a, an expression of that, and humanists absolutely are an expression of that.
0: Well, if you ever want to see a really thrilling debate between Tom and a well-known humanist, A.C. Grayling, um, do check out the unbelievable show, The, the Big Conversation. Uh, oh, you're incredible, Dustin. I, I am a terrible bit of self-promotion, but it's an absolutely crack. Debate. So, so you should you should go and watch that. Thanks for being with us this week and you can hear the rest of my conversation with Tom Holland on next week's edition of the show when Tom talks about the way the Bible set the stage for the anti-slavery movement. By the way, feel free to feedback your thoughts to us. Unbelievable at premier.org.uk is the email address. And don't forget, you can get all of our content via newsletter. You'll even get a free ebook when you register at premierunbelievable.com. For now, God bless and see you next time.
1: You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources, and our newsletter, visit PremierUnbelievable.com.